0: Hello, and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud, with your host, cloud economist Corey Quinn. This weekly show features conversations with people doing interesting work in the world of cloud, thoughtful commentary on the state of the technical world, and ridiculous titles for which Corey refuses to apologize. This is Screaming in the Cloud. This week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud is generously sponsored by DigitalOcean. I would argue that every cloud platform out there biases for different things. Uh, Some bias for having every feature you could possibly want offered as a managed service at varying degrees of maturity. Others bias for, hey, we heard there's some money to be made in the cloud space. Uh, Can you give us some of it? DigitalOcean biases for neither. Uh, To me, they optimize for simplicity. I polled some friends of mine who are avid DigitalOcean supporters about why they're using it for various things, and they all said more or less the same thing. Other offerings have a bunch of shenanigans with root access and IP addresses, DigitalOcean makes it all simple. In 60 seconds, you have root access to a Linux box with an IP. That's a direct quote, uh, albeit with profanity about other providers taken out. DigitalOcean also offers fixed price offerings. Uh, You always know what you're going to wind up paying this month, so you don't wind up having a minor heart issue when the bill comes in. Their services are also understandable without spending three months going to cloud school. You don't have to worry about going very deep to understand what you're doing. It's click button or make an API call, and you receive a cloud resource. They also include very understandable monitoring and alerting. And lastly, they're not exactly what I would call small-time. Over 150,000 businesses are using them today. So go ahead and give them a try. Uh, Visit do.co slash screaming, and they'll give you a free $100 credit to try it out. That's do.co slash screaming. Thanks again to DigitalOcean for their support of Screaming in the Cloud. Hello and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud. I'm Corey Quinn. I'm joined this week by Fatima Boxwala, who's currently a computer science student at the University of Waterloo in the faraway land of Canada. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Corey. Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> so I met Fatima a few weeks back when we were both at SRECon EMEA in Germany, and you gave an interesting talk about your experience as an intern and how to structure internships in ways that made sense, both for companies as well as for the interns themselves. You've so far been an intern at Rackspace, Yelp, and Facebook, correct? Yes. Awesome. So one of the recurring themes that we've discussed in previous episodes of this show has been around the idea of where the next generation of SREs or DevOps professionals or people who want to violently fight about either one of those terms because, hey, nomenclature debates are what this entire field is about, where does that next generation come from? Where do we find those people? For those of us who've been doing this for 10, 20 years, the roads that we walk down are largely closed. You don't have large pools of help desk support the way that you used to. You don't wind up with jobs of people climbing around in the data center and learning how to punch down cables and rack servers and gradually work your way through from that perspective. Now, it's it's almost one of those entry-level DevOps jobs require about five years of experience in some respect. And trying to get around to how we wind up building that has been sort of a recurring theme here. What I really liked about your talk is how you approached it from a perspective of setting an internship program up for success.
1: So, my talk was kind of about my experiences being an intern in like the site reliability and operations space and the things that I took away from them and the ways that mentors really made the experience positive for me and made it, you know, something that I actually wanted to do when I graduated like a field that I'd want to enter uh, straight out of college which is clearly not something that's very common like most people end up doing regular software development or you know, application development or something like that when they graduate.
0: Right, they wind up doing operations due to a confluence of poor life choices.
1: Yeah, it's not really something that we get introduced to. So the internships that I did were kind of the only way that I knew it was something that existed. And the only reason that I got my first internship at Rackspace, that was kind of more operational, was because I had a friend who had graduated and she was the systems administrator for one of our clubs on school. Um, and she set up this really, really great system for us and then promptly graduated uh, <laughs> and left basically no one in charge of those servers. So I kind of had that responsibility thrust upon me. And it's where I learned, like, basically my. Um, low level systems knowledge, you know, just like resetting people's passwords and making sure that everyone had user accounts and stuff. And she's the one who introduced me to Rackspace because she was working there full time. And she thought that I would be a really good fit for the internship. So that's kind of how I got introduced to the space, mostly by accident, like I just fell into it. There wasn't really an academic path to get me there. So I have
0: to ask, when... I talk to interns who are at various client sites of mine, both in San Francisco and elsewhere, there's usually three or four schools that they come from almost exclusively. You have Waterloo, of course, and you also see RIT. So is this something that is done systemically at the university or are they just doing terrific marketing of
1: their students at career fairs? Well, for Waterloo in particular, the reason is that we have a co-op program. So we actually have to complete five internships to graduate. Most students end up doing six. So if we don't get those internships, we don't get the degree. So the pressure is much higher for us to get jobs. But it also means that by, you know, fourth year or third year, most students are like extremely qualified professional software engineers because they've already been doing it for a while. So it makes like, especially our upper year students really, really attractive to like these high level companies for internships, especially. Um, But I also think you know, it's just like confirmation bias. Like they only hire interns from these like five schools and they're like, wow, these interns are really great and we only ever hire them. And they don't really like see that there are other schools that have really like high quality students. Uh, And there's not that many companies that will go out of their way to recruit from like different schools to see, you know, like if you're never going to interview them, you're never going to hire them and see how good they are. But because they've been doing it from these five schools for so long, it's really hard for them to change, which is a really big problem, actually, because obviously there's lots of extremely intelligent students at schools that aren't these five schools. And these schools, you know, I mean, a pipeline starts somewhere and that somewhere is probably high school. And if you're not going to a very good high school, then you're probably not going to get into one of the top tech colleges. And if you don't get into one of the top tech colleges, you probably won't get an internship at a top tech company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously, like good high schools are dependent on the income level of neighborhoods. So it's a pretty big problem overall.
0: There's a definite systemic problem in that companies say, oh, we don't have time to train anyone. We want to find someone with the exact mix of skills that we need them to have. So instead of hiring someone and getting them up to speed in three to four months, they spent nine months with the job rec open because they can't find the exact thing that they're looking for. And it's think through exactly what that's going to look like in terms of return on investment, time to market, and being able to get someone up to speed and productive. It's It's a growing problem. And I'm not entirely sure that the traditional approaches are going to continue to work. This is compounded more so than in traditional development by the fact that when you're dealing with operations in any meaningful capacity, very often what you want to hear from your ops team when there's a problem is, oh, the last time I saw this, we solved it by, and then you get to fill in the blank there. It's not something that necessarily follows an established curriculum in the same sense. In my experience, I'm very curious to know how you wound up approaching this from an academic perspective
1: yeah I guess that's true. It really is something that you build up from experience. One of the problems that we had in my the systems committee that I mentioned for our school servers, so the women in computer science committee owns like four or five servers basically, and we just use them for administrative stuff and like we offer a little bit of computing resources to women in computer science and we would not want to give like first year's like systems committee privileges, like we wouldn't want them to have pseudo because they hadn't ever, you know, worked in a Linux environment before and they we we didn't think that we could trust them with the power or whatever. But it made a really big continuity problem because there was no way to train someone how to be a systems administrator if you weren't willing to give them the privileges of a systems administrator. So I had to deal with like being the only person after my friend graduated who had any idea of what to do with those servers. And then I would try to train people But like asking them to learn how to do systems administration without giving them any tasks that they could actually do was like extremely difficult. And I had like a lot of trouble getting anyone to sign on board with the committee or like stick around for training or anything like that. Um, And eventually I just kind of gave someone root privileges and I was like, don't do anything bad. But also if you do, it's not the end of the world. And yeah, I think that, you know, that approach worked for her and she learned a lot, but it's definitely not the kind of thing I would imagine being able to teach someone in class. Like it really only worked because it was an extracurricular and it was, you know, student led and mistakes weren't going to ruin anyone's lives or anything, or, you know, take down an application in prod. Um, It would just mess up some students' projects maybe for a few minutes. So I think having, um, That kind of low-stakes environment for someone to train in is really, really helpful. And I think it could be recreated in a classroom, maybe. Or, you know, it's, it's not an impossible task. I just don't think that anyone has thought about doing it or put in a training program, at least in my school, to get it done.
0: Yeah, and this is somewhat heresy in the field of operations to some extent. But if you take a look at what most companies do, and there are exceptions to this, of course, but for most shops, a service going down for a few minutes is not the end of the world. It costs some money, it leads to some unhappy customers, but as a general rule, nobody dies because the Netflix movie won't start or the ad won't display on a page, or you can't get an update from what your friend is up to this weekend. Now, there are exceptions to that. It's, yes, when we go down, suddenly planes fall out of the sky, and traffic lights stop working, and suddenly the power plant is no longer regulated. That's a whole separate pile of pile of nonsense that you generally want to be very careful around. But even in those environments, there aren't too many systems that are on the critical path. So this idea that, we've sort of come up with that things must stay up at all times uh, regardless, in some ways isn't helpful when it winds up keeping people away from being able to contribute or participate in coming up to speed on those things. One of my favorite interview questions when I was running ops teams was always, tell me about a time that you broke production. And if people didn't have a story like that, it generally meant one of a few things. Either they were lying or about, um, have, about never having broken anything, let's be honest, because all of us have broken something. Or they were in an environment that never trusted them to wind up touching the things that mattered. And that wasn't necessarily a deal breaker, but it did mean they didn't have necessarily, I guess, the scar tissue that would make them successful in a role where they were about to have that. So it's it's one of those interesting areas where, as an intern, it's sometimes strikes me as a a bit of a weird model where when I've dealt with interns in the past, some companies do a terrible job of it. They give them trivial tasks that don't really matter, the quote-unquote busy work, and if they do fantastically well or horrifyingly poorly, it doesn't move the needle on anything. Uh, So I have to ask, based upon your talk, what makes for a good internship? If you're considering building an internship program, how do you set that up for success?
1: Um, I think there's a lot of different things that factor into making an internship good. But in terms of the work that you're having your intern do, I think especially for ops teams, you really want it to mimic what you would have like a, a junior engineer or a full time engineer be doing on your team. And I think the problem with that is that interns are only there for four months. So they don't like have the time to ramp up completely as a junior engineer might, but they still have enough time to, you know, do something significant. Like you could think of a project that they could work on that would, you know, last two months or three months after they finished ramping up. But, like you want to make sure that they are doing the kind of work that everyone else is doing so if you have like um like for example at Yelp there was an on point rotation so whoever was on point for that day their name was in the topic of the IRC channel for ops and then any developer that had a question for ops that day like the, you know the on point person was the person that had to handle that question or figure out where to send them or take that ticket or triage the ticket queue or whatever um which it was kind of difficult like a hard job to do. Um, and it definitely wasn't the most fun. But I thought that being part of the on-point rotation as an intern really helped me like understand lots of different parts of the code base and lots of different um, responsibilities that the ops team usually handled. And it was something that I think a lot of companies or a lot of teams would shy away from putting an intern on because you know it's not something that has a lot of deliverables. Like It's not presentable at the end of the day as I finished this chunk of code. And it also is kind of stressful and a little bit annoying to have to do that for another team. But doing it is really, really valuable. And it's also something that you would have to do when you are actually an ops engineer. So making sure that your internship incorporates all that kinds of stuff. Like, you know, if you have an on-call rotation that your junior engineers would normally be a shadow on, then letting your intern shadow your on-call is also a good idea. Um, If everyone has to triage the ticket queue every now and then, like... Asking your intern to take on some of that work, like when they have lulls in their productivity or whatever, is also a really a good idea. Like generally not shying away from putting your intern on the kinds of things that you think a senior or a junior engineer would be working on is good. But also making sure that if they do have a project project, like you know, like something that they're responsible for for those four months, that it's not something that's going to get thrown away immediately after they leave. Uh, just because you think that it might be hard. Or like, you know, like really difficult or not doable in four months. Like any project can be scoped down. So there's no point in coming up with a project that is small enough for them to get done, but is basically useless. When you could, you know, put them on a larger project, maybe that everyone else is also going to work on when they leave. And that way they learn a lot about doing really good handoff and working within your team and working with other people, like just making sure that their work is actually going to have an impact once they're gone.
0: To be very clear, these are all paid internships, correct?
1: Yes, I <laughs> do not advise trying to hire unpaid internships in tech. That's definitely not like the trend that we're moving towards at all. Um, I think internships are just getting more and more highly paid. So if you're offering an internship that doesn't pay well, like I don't think any CS student is going to take it at this point.
0: And at least in the United States, in most states, the Board of Labor is going to want to have a conversation with you about your hiring practices. It seems to me that it would be an interesting problem to solve for in that when you're building out a internship program, you're trying to make yourselves competitive and get people to say yes to an internship offer. With no real expectation that after three months or so that they're going to necessarily stick around. And of course, the idea is to for the company to extend an offer after the fact and then get a full-time employee. That often is one of those, sure, in 18 months when I finish school, I'd love to come talk to you. Companies generally don't tend to think that far ahead. Do you find that that tends to wind up being a bit of a sticking point for companies as they set these programs up?
1: I think it can be a sticking point for smaller companies um, like startups and like medium sized companies that haven't like, you know, the ones that haven't actually started building an internship program yet. But I think what you have to think about when you're thinking about building an intern project is not to have tunnel vision to what will be good for your company or your startup or whatever. Like your company is one thing, but the ops community and the site reliability community at large is another And we like really have to focus on getting young people into site reliability engineering, especially, and also probably operations in general, because there's just like not that many. Um, And if we don't train the next generation of engineers in general for any company, then you're not going to have a pool of talent to hire from. So thinking about it more as an investment in the future of the community and less as an investment in the future of just your company would probably help a lot with that. But I think though, like, you know, the Facebooks and the Googles, they already have these internship programs and they already have literal billions of dollars. So it's not so much of a problem like convincing them to run these internship programs. But I think it definitely is harder to convince um, like a smaller company to take on an intern in operations.
0: So here's a question that I'm hoping doesn't throw anyone under the bus. Uh, What makes for a terrible internship?
1: I think, so the most common thing that I see in terrible internships or terrible intern experiences is bad mentorship. So, usually the way that these internship programs are set up is you have your manager, like your team manager, and then you probably also have someone in the role of your intern mentor or your intern buddy or whatever. And that person is supposed to be like in charge of your success. Like they're supposed to, you know, have come up with a project. They're supposed to be talking to you throughout your internship, helping you build that project, checking in with you regularly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And people like sign up to do this and don't. Have the requisite skills to be that person. Like being a mentor is not just the technical work of teaching someone your code base. It's like a lot of emotional labor and it's a lot of like the skills that you would need to be an actual manager. Um, And I think a lot of mentors will sign up for this responsibility and just not be able to handle it. And that leads to really bad experiences for interns. Like I've known people like crying at the end of an internship because they're like, I don't know what my mentor wants. Like the expectations have never been clear. They've never given me feedback that I've been able to understand. And now this internship is ending and I don't feel like I've made a successful project and I don't think I'm going to get this full-time offer, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it is usually just because you know their intern manager was not a good communicator and didn't set their expectations correctly and wasn't able to pivot with them when like their situation changed in the internship. So I think the number one thing that will make for a bad intern experience will be a bad mentor. and. That's just because people aren't trained to be good mentors for interns.
0: So at what point in an internship is it appropriate to wind up asking about the possibility of conversion or getting an offer or what the end of this is going to look like? I mean, it seems like a weird thing to ask before you find out where the bathroom is. But I'm also a big believer in approaching things at the beginning, with an understanding of what a successful outcome is going to be, and magically pretending that oh yeah, this is just all about having a good summer. It's not about getting a job offer, or my career, or anything like that. Is just it seems disingenuous. But you also don't necessarily want to be off-putting. When's the right time to have that conversation?
1: I think uh, that's funny because I generally feel like. I'm very aggressive about this personally. So when I was working in my first Facebook internship, after the second one-on-one that I had with my mentor, so this was maybe like two weeks in or three weeks in, every one-on-one after that, I would wait till he was like done talking or whatever. And I'd be like, so if this internship ended today, would I get a return offer? Yes or no. Um, And obviously for like a long time, he didn't really have an answer for that. And he was like, well, I'm not like, you haven't done anything like you started working here last week um but i just felt like it was something that i had to ask regularly because it was like that's what i cared about like i was there to build my career and i wanted to judge my development on the metric of what they were judging it on which was am i going to get a return offer you know like i wanted to be synced up about that but uh, talking to other interns has made it pretty clear that like that's not something that everyone can do and is really not something everyone is comfortable with asking. But I think something that as like companies and mentors should really, really be clear about right from the get-go is like what this internship is about. Like you're, you're right. It is disingenuous for an intern to go in and be like, oh, I'm just here to have fun. Like I don't care what happens like that might be true, but it's probably not. But like, it's extra, extra disingenuous for a company to be like, we're just here to teach you operations and have a great time. Like, no, you're paying me. I'm an employee. Like, I'm here to provide labor to you and you're going to pay me for it. And then you're going to make a decision about my performance.
0: Yeah, treating it otherwise is toying with people. It's similar to the performance review thing where people care initially about a few things. One, am I getting fired? Two, am I getting a raise? And if so, how much? And putting those parts of the conversation at the end after a 30-minute spiel of what your performance has been and individual examples, no one is listening or caring until they get to those particular points.
1: Yeah, that's true. So I think as a company or a mentor or whatever, like an intern, like you're managing an intern program, you have to be super clear from the first meeting with your intern about what's going on. Like, is this the kind of internship where a full time offer is on the table at the end? Is this the kind of internship where you could get a return internship offer? Um, Is your company actually having a hiring freeze, so none of those things are available to your intern? Like, you have to be really clear about that with them right when they get there, and then whether or not you're gonna like continually be talking to them in the frame of, you know, are you going to get hired or not? Like that's a conversation you have to have with your intern. If that's the kind of feedback that they're interested in, then that's what you should be providing.
0: It really seems to me that it comes down to a question of setting expectations up front.
1: Yeah, I think that was one of, or I think that was kind of the pivotal point of the talk that I gave was that you really have to be clear about expectations and feedback all the time. And I think I mean I think anyone that's worked in a company and had a manager will recognize that that's true but there's just a lot of bad culture around that I guess I don't know how it is in other industries but in tech it just seems really weird like we're all supposed to buy into this like idea that we're just here to make the world a better place or <laughs> write an app that helps rich people find a good sandwich like we don't care about our performance or like feedback or anything but it's not true. It's not true when you're an intern. It's not true when you're a full-time engineer either. So when your intern is only there for four months and the entire time they're like super confused about what your expectations are and you're not giving them any feedback, that makes for like a way worse experience than maybe if they were a full-time and they had another four months after that to really buckle down and be like, what's going on? Um, It wouldn't have as much of an impact. But when you're an intern, it's just really scary, especially because... You're probably young, and you've probably like not had that many jobs before, which makes it extra intimidating.
0: And standing up for yourself in those scenarios is challenging, even for people who aren't in that precarious of a position. I mean, you see a scenario where terrible management patterns get amplified in internship scenarios. I will not name the person, but the worst manager I ever had spoke only in metaphor. <laughs> and that works for some people, but it doesn't work for me. And I think that as someone who's running an internship program or managing people, you have a responsibility to deliver feedback on the same wavelength as the person listening. And everyone wants to hear feedback differently. That's something that often gets lost. And I think winds up making some internship programs relatively inhumane.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. And it's hard to get to know someone when they're only going to be there for a short amount of time in your company. But it's not hard to just be direct and ask the questions that need to be asked. Like just asking your intern, do you want feedback in like a written form or do you want to have a one-on-one every week? Like people never ask that. And some people really do prefer to get that kind of feedback in an email. Um, but like on the flip side, some people really do not want that. Like I personally hate getting like written feedback because you you don't see the person's face, uh, which is really scary to me because, you, you know, anything could be taken in any tone of voice when it's written down. And I always assume that the tone of voice is negative. But for other people, it's like really what they prefer. And like, you know, that's just like one example of something that you would want to talk about in one of those first meetings with your intern or any employee. Julia Evans, she makes zines online and her... Twitter handle is like B0RK. Anyways, she made a zine really recently about talking to your manager about feedback. And it's really, really good. And I think everyone should read it. And it just has a lot of really good tips about like the fact that you're a person and your manager is a person too. And sometimes you just have to like work through these things together. And there are ways for you to make your manager's job easier. And there's obviously lots of ways for your manager to make your job easier. Um, But I just really like the way that she phrased it in that zine.
0: I'll throw a link to that in the show notes. I'm right there with you on that. So I have to ask, did the internship programs in your case work? By which I mean, are you considering taking a job with one of the companies that you internship or would you consider working with them? Or instead, is it one of those stories of, well, after three months learning how the sausage gets made, I hate all of those places and I'm going to go raise goats instead?
1: (laughs) Um, I mean, I had one internship that I don't even mention in my bio and stuff, and it was just my first internship and it was really, really bad. Uh, But basically every internship I've had since that one has been pretty positive for me personally. Like I've gotten a lot out of them and I have really enjoyed the teams that I'm working on. So I actually am going to be returning to one of the places that I interned at. And the reason that I'm returning to that place in particular is because I had a really great experience with my mentor, and I had a really great experience with all the other people that I met at that company, and they're going to pay me the amount of money that I want to be paid, which matters to me a lot, obviously, um, and isn't talked about that much. No,
0: it's, it's, it's considered taboo to talk about wanting to work for money. Yeah, except that that applies to approximately everyone. And I hate this. I have this model where talking about money is somehow considered uncouth. It doesn't benefit employees at all. The companies know what everyone makes, internally and externally, because people tell them. The only people who aren't aware are the people getting paid.
1: Yeah. Um, I try to make a point of like sharing what, I signed for at any particular internship or job or whatever, or like what offers I have, uh, like pretty widely within my circle, at least, so that when other people are up for the same jobs or are negotiating like similar positions, you know, they can actually point to numbers of someone else who's gotten an offer or whatever. I know that there's, you know, there's been like Twitter hashtags about it, and Jackie Lou does a really good job of like getting people to share anonymously what they're making at different companies. So I think that, that that culture shift is happening really slowly, which is good because I think it's really important.
0: I would agree wholeheartedly. So, where can people find more about you? More about your thoughts? Anything interesting you have coming up in the near future that you want to talk about? At this point,
1: um, people can follow me on Twitter. So my handle is at fatty f a t t y underscore box. Um, it's mostly shit posts. It's occasionally funny shit posts. Um, and you can also go to my website if you want to see any of the talks that I've given if they've been uploaded, which a lot of the times those videos don't come up very quickly. But um, fbox.ca is where I post those links once they're up. And I think my internship talk should be up soon. So that one will be there eventually. The slides are all there though.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Sounds like internships have really come a long way from the crappy version that I used to deal with back when I was coming up. And it does sound like a very viable path forward if your company can sustain something like that.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: <laughs> Thank you once again. This has been Fatima Boxwala, and I'm Corey Quinn. This is Screaming in the Cloud.
1: This has been this
0: week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud. You can also find more Corey at ScreamingintheCloud.com or wherever fine snark is sold.